0: A powerful new movement is rising across America from the Mississippi Delta to the Apache stronghold from the homeless encampments of Washington to the coal fields of West Virginia we are the hundred and forty million poor and low wealth people in this country and we are building the poor people's campaign a national call for moral revival
1: on June 20th between the primaries and the general election we will rise together for the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, a digital justice gathering.
0: Our nation is at a historic crossroads. There are those who say big change isn't necessary or possible, that we are powerless to make our lives better.
1: But history teaches us that it is exactly in times like these that people from all walks of life must build a broad and deep movement from the
0: bottom up. On June 20th, We will come together to lift the voices and faces of poverty in the midst of pandemic for a massive, historic online gathering that will embolden us, strengthen us, and prepare us to fight for the kind of society we know we so badly need and deserve.
1: Rise with us. Visit june2020.org. Good morning, and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And uh, we're going to be speaking to uh, Nell myhan uh, who's in the studio with us presently, about the uh, National Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington Digital Gathering uh, tomorrow, June 20th. And um, so welcome to the show, Nell. It hasn't been the first time we've spoken, but... It's been a minute between us talking about this uh, gathering and the gathering actually being
2: just one day away.
1: How are you?
2: Yes, well, I'm actually very excited, Wanda, and I want to say thank you for inviting me to speak this morning about the Portugal's campaign, a national call for moral revival. You know, we have been planning to be in Washington, D.C. tomorrow on Mm -hmm. June 20th. Um, but of course, with a pandemic, we can't gather, and so we're having the largest digital justice event in the history of the country
1: mm, wow wow yeah i I'm really looking forward to your telling us sort of what does that mean uh a digital gathering for those that this might, they might be um you know new to um uh digital technology, but they're gonna you know sort of work through. Any of their um, fears and uh, and not necessarily having you know sort of the technical whereabout, you know wherewithal and and actually join because you know people don't want to miss this. So you are uh, an Oakland-based organizer, author, and speaker whose work brings people together across age, race, class, and other differences, forming alliances to create powerful, effective solutions to common problems that leave no one out and no one behind. You are a member of the Bay Area Poor People's Campaign Steering Committee, working locally and nationally to amplify the voices of low, no-wealth people and our demands for resources to meet our basic needs for housing, education, health care, and a livable climate. You also organize with Women of Color in Global Women's Strike, an international organization calling on all governments for a care income now that would recognize unwaged caregiving as work deserving of a wage. So, again, welcome. So perhaps uh, maybe you could just sort of tell us how how the day is going to go and when does it start here on the West Coast and, yeah, how people can get plugged in. Okay.
2: Well, the moral, Moral March on Washington and Mass Poor People's Assembly, Is going to be live streamed, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific time because we were going to we were our event it was going to start at 10. So there it'll be 10 Eastern time, and but it'll be seven you know depending on where your listeners are they'll have to adjust the time, and Mm -hmm. it'll run about two hours. And the great thing about it is that it's available on lots of platforms. And so, you know, I know some of your listeners probably are boycotting Facebook, frankly, um, and or, you know, or just don't have internet. And so it'll be available also on MSNBC and on Free Speech TV. People can call in to listen to it. The thing is that if you – can register at june2020.org, then that puts you into the system so that you can get updates and the information about where to find the program tomorrow. So, it, you know, there's, we started doing digital assemblies in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And so we've had our MORE events, mobilizing, organizing, registering, Mm -hmm. and educating people for a movement that votes. And those started in August of 2019 in different states across the country, including in San Francisco, where I'm located. I live in Oakland, but the MORE event Mm -hmm. was in San Francisco. And it actually was an in-person gathering at GLIDE. Um, And so early in 2020 we started we took those online and so what you know it'll be in the same kind of spirit as the mortar events which is that there will be testifiers from across the country who are speaking about their situations as low and no wealth people people who are challenging Um, The five pillars that we At the Poor People's Campaign are challenging You know we're building on Dr. King's radical Legacy And in 1968 In the run up to The Poor People's Campaign That he called For He Said that Poor people Power for poor people will really mean having the ability, the togetherness, the assertiveness, and the aggressiveness to make the power structure of this nation say yes when they may be desirous to say no. And so we are building on those words. And, you know, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that all across the country people are building on those words and and flooding the streets in the wake of the police violence that's taken the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many countless others and um, to send condolences and loving kindness to the families and to recommit to the fight for justice because the demands of the poor people are very broad. We're challenging systemic racism. We're challenging poverty, the militarism and the military budget, ecological devastation, and the distorted moral narrative in this country of Christian nationalism. And so you will be hearing from people across the country tomorrow about all of those issues and how their lives are impacted and what they're doing about it. And like I said, it will run a couple of hours. And, of course, we'll hear from Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is probably known to a lot of your listeners, and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. They're the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign.
1: Yeah. Um, Who else will be speaking? Will anyone be speaking from the San Francisco Bay Area?
2: Well, we do have some speakers who are going to be speaking from California, but we don't have speakers from specifically from the Bay Area. Uh Oh, I'm sorry. I take that back. Curtis Bradford from um, San Francisco. Yeah, he spoke actually at our MORE event event. He's a person who lives in the Tenderloin and, you know, has a really powerful story to tell. And so he's going to be speaking. And then Mary Kay Henry, the president of the SEI International from San Francisco, is also going to be speaking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so tell us about some of the, um, you know, sort of connecting it back with Dr. King's um, uh Poor people's campaign and um and the continuation of of that particular campaign even after he was killed you know in Memphis um to now, as so long as you could connect it up for us around um you know the importance of of this campaign and the testimonies and the hearings that have been going on for a number of years and, and sort of um, you know sort of what what is you know how why why this this particular assembly and and what are some of the um uh expected outcomes
2: mm-hmm. well in 1968 after the assassination of Dr King um Reverend Ralph Abernathy took up the charge and actually last Saturday we had an online event um, nineteen sixty eight to twenty twenty, everybody's got a right to live and we won't be silent anymore. And one of our featured speakers was Bernard Lafayette, who was one of the central organizers of the poor people the nineteen sixty eight poor people's campaign. And so it was really so important to hear from him because, you know, he's an elder at this point and he has, you know, decades of experience organizing in defense of poor people. And so he talked about the impact of the tent city that went up in, on, the, on the mall in Washington, D.C., and that there was legislation that came out of that push that addressed the three evils that they were addressing at the time, poverty, racism, and the military budget. And so we know that we you know we don't have the power of wealth but we do have the power of numbers because even pre-covid there were 140 million low and no wealth people living in the United States and with 41 people 41 million people unemployed and we don't know how long how far into the future people are going to be impacted economically by the virus we know that the numbers of poor people are increasing you know, rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the policy wonks at the Poor People's Campaign have estimated that there will be a forty percent increase in homelessness related to the pandemic. And so it, we, you know, obviously we didn't know that we were going to be in this moment when we planned for this moral march on Washington and the Poor People's Assembly but it's quite timely. And so one of the goals of the Poor People's Campaign is to change the narrative by changing the narrator. And so rather than being spoken for, poor people are speaking on our own behalf. We're speaking, we're telling our own stories. And the Poor People's Campaign is amplifying those stories. And so for anybody who doesn't know what it means to be trying to live in poverty, you know, whether people are the people are unhoused or lacking health care or having the burden of student debt, you know, dealing with environmental racism. There are testifiers who will be speaking to all those issues, the water fight, and Flint, you know, to have just the most basic human right, which is clean water to drink, something that most of us take for granted, that when we go to the tap, we can trust that the water that we're drinking is not making our children developmentally disabled, you know. So we'll have a range of speakers from all across the country we're a fusion movement, and so we look like the United Nations, basically. You know, we have people from all different ethnicities, geographies, sexualities, sexual orientations, gender identities, people of faith, people of no faith, um, and we'll be bringing together that lineup, and so and 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 the virtual choir. Um, and so, people who tune in will, there you you know, pay, they, because people are sheltering in place, there'll be the the segments that they are that they offer will be from where they are located, and those will be you know, so those will be broadcast in or in whatever order they have arranged, and we actually have some special guests who are going to be introducing the testifiers. And some of those guests include Mr. Danny Glover, who's from San Francisco, former Vice President Al Gore, Jane Fonda, David Oyelowo, Wanda Sykes, Deborah Messing, and Erica Alexander. And so, yeah, we're excited to have the support of, like I said, we're a fusion movement. And so we're not only poor people because we know that everybody is impacted by ecological devastation. We all need an environment that is not being polluted and um, that the issue of climate change is being addressed. We all need that. And we're all impacted, frankly, by the military budget. And so we're really quite pleased and supporting our congressperson here in Oakland, Representative Barbara Lee, who has taken directly from the moral budget that we released in 2019, the suggestion that the military budget could be reduced by $350 billion to address the needs of poor people across the country and ecological, and the needs for ecological d- devastation to be addressed. And so she just recently introduced that to the Congress. Oh, that's great. That's really
1: great. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about. Um, sort of like, okay, the 20th happens. I, I thought from what I was reading um, that there was um, programming from 10 to 6 on Saturday, and then um, on Sunday there was some also some programming. But um, you mentioned that it was two hours on Saturday. So I was wondering if you could clarify that for me and then talk more about um, next steps after this weekend, and and what is the moral agenda that this um, movement is based on?
2: Mm-hmm. So the program is going to be live-streamed starting at 10 a.m. Eastern time, 7 a.m. Pacific time. Mm-hmm. And it will run a couple hours, and then it will be rebroadcast, 3 p.m. Pacific time on Saturday and again on Sunday. Okay. Right.
1: Okay. And, and 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 people could find out about that when they register. Um they'll get information about the rebroadcast as well as the live broadcast at 7 a.m. Pacific time.
2: Right. Okay. Exactly. Right. And so in terms of the moral agenda, you know, again, we're living with 43.5% of the population pre-COVID living in poverty or near poverty. And last year during the Moral Congress, one of the things that happened, there are a few things that happened. We had a freedom school there where we got to meet people from all across the country who are organizing as the Poor People's Campaign. Forty-three states were represented there. And we released the Moral Budget, which is a document that lays out a plan to address the needs of that 43.5% of the population. You know, the distorted moral narrative says that people are poor because of some personal failing that we don't work hard enough, we're not very smart, um, we, drug addiction or alcoholism is why we are poor. And when you consider the fact that 43% of the population pre-COVID was living so close to poverty that a $400 emergency would have put, made an economic crisis for them, then it's hard to say that that many people are poor because of some personal failing. And so we challenge the distorted moral narrative that says it's our fault. And we point to the policies that are in place and have been historically that have generated this great divide in this country where a few people do very well and a lot of people can't you know are, are can't make ends meet. In fact, there is no city in the country where people working a live um, a minimum wage job can afford a two bedroom apartment, and that's not because people aren't working. that's because the minimum wage is so low, and there has been resistance to raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars that, you know, they act like you're going to become a millionaire if you make $15 an hour. And we know here in the Bay Area, $15 an hour is not a living wage. There are some places in the country where people can live on $15 an hour if they're frugal. But here in the Bay Area, I think it's something like $22 an hour, that, you you know, that if you're not making $22 an hour, you basically have to work two and three jobs to try to be housed, have food, and provide for the needs of you and your family. And so the moral agenda is about calling that out and demanding that the people who dismantled the war on poverty take responsibility for doing that and stop saying that the war on poverty failed and acknowledge that the... Investment in the military, 53 cents of every discretionary budget dollar goes to the U.S. military. And most of that 53 cents does not go to the frontline soldiers. It goes to military contractors for these, you know, wasteful, barbaric weapons that they use around the world. Against mostly poor people and people of color To destroy and steal and pillage And then they've begun to pass these weapons down To police forces across the country And so we're seeing military-grade weapons on the streets That's what peaceful protesters are facing You know, when we hit the streets to protest the police violence or, you know, to demand accountability from our public and elected officials, like I think about Moms for Housing, those brave and, you know, really clever women who took the house in West Oakland on Magnolia Street late in 2019 because they refused to be homeless with their children. I don't know if people know that if you're homeless and you're a parent, they can take your children because they call it neglect. And so, you know, the moral agenda basically says that take our poverty away, not our children. hmm so what we're expecting is that, you know, in the run-up to this event, we've had tens of thousands of people connect with the Poor People's Campaign across the country. And, again, our power is in numbers. And as I said earlier, that the March Tour was mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating people for a movement that votes. And so part of our focus is on the November election. As the promo said, this event was timed so that it felt after the primaries and before the conventions because we are a nonpartisan organism. And we are... Calling One of the things that happened at the Moral Action Congress last year was that we had a presidential forum where we invited Democrats and Republicans to come take questions from the 1,200 people who had assembled there about what their commitment was to address the needs of people of low wealth and no wealth and we actually did have nine Democratic candidates who joined us and took those questions. And one of the main questions that we posed was, will you call for a debate focused on poverty? Because between the 2016 election cycle and the 2020 election cycle, there have been 60 debates, but not one has been focused on poverty in spite of the fact that over 40% of the U.S. population is living with low and no wealth. And so, you know, we are, are demanding that whoever is elected to whatever office, whether it is the city council in the, in the communities where people are living or the state legislatures or the Congress or the presidency, that the needs of poor people must be addressed. And so so part of what we're organizing to do is to really have a massive turnout of voters. We know that Donald Trump lost the election in 2016 by 3 million votes, the popular election, and that he was selected by the Electoral College to serve as president, and that there were 100 million people who didn't vote because they were not motivated to vote. And so we feel like we're going to have to have a cheat-proof majority in order to beat Donald Trump in November. And we know that we also need massive change in the Senate. We need, you know, we need change in the Congress, basically. And we need more progressive Democrats as well as to, you know, shift the um, the majority to Democrat in the Senate. Um, you know, we're not naive. We know that the Democrats have been a big disappointment because with a few exceptions, with few exceptions, they don't say the word poverty either until recently. And so, you know, we are capitalizing on this moment that we're in when there is some recognition um that then that people are calling for radical change in this country and so you know we're going to be um really pressing the vote and then also um crafting some legislation so that they have good bills to pass
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah Um, So thank you so much, uh, Nell, for joining us. And um, I wanted to um, reiterate that people need to go to uh, june2020.org to register, to take a picture, and become a part of this movement. It's going to be virtual, but you can actually have a a tangible uh, representation, you know, as a part of, you know, your presence there—you don't have to be anonymous, and and also, um, in, in closing, I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to the the weekend that we are a part of. Today is Juneteenth, uh, which represents the 155-year-old holiday celebrating the emancipation of Black Americans from slavery in the United States, and it's the oldest known celebration commemorating the ending of slavery here. Um, going back to 1865 on June 19th when the Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, with the news that the war had ended and that enslaved Africans were free. Um, and uh, and this is two and a half years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation um, went into law, January 1st, 1863. And in this year there um are some particular um uh, what do you call it hashtags um stop the violence in our communities, hashtag reimagine justice in our communities, hashtag invest in community and um and hashtag of course Black Lives Matter. So I'm sure this weekend was not arbitrarily chosen given the organizer organizing of Of uh, a Reverend um, uh, Barbara and and Theo Harris's, so
2: yeah, yeah. Well, happy Juneteenth to you and your listeners. And it is important that we celebrate freedom because you know that was a victory and that was a that was our victory. You know, when Abraham Lincoln got a lot of credit, but you know what we know is that he was under tremendous pressure from black people who were. Dealing themselves out of slavery and rebelling and standing up for their rights, you know, in the face of, you know, the odds and, you know, and great odds against them. And so it was only because there was resistance to slavery that slavery ended. And so that, so I feel like the Juneteenth is a celebration of our victory. So thank you for reminding us about that. <laughs>
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. Yeah, well, thanks for all of your work and uh around organizing this historic event, you know, this coming weekend tomorrow and Sunday for the rebroadcast. Um, but I'm gonna be there live tomorrow at seven AM Pacific time 'cause I don't I wanna like catch it in the beginning and just case I wanna see it again. So yeah, thanks for all of your work, Nell and um and everyone else, you know, who have been, you know, working for this to happen tomorrow um, for a number of years, a number of years, and yeah, really looking forward to um, you know next steps because I know the
2: organizing is not going to cease. Right. Exactly. In fact, I feel like it's begin It's the- tomorrow is the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Cool. Cool. So thank Cooper. you so much, Wanda.
2: <laughs> thank you for the, your work.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. Yeah. All righty. Well, look forward to seeing you. Um, you know, uh, in Washington virtually tomorrow. Exactly.
2: All right, until then.
1: <laughs> All right, peace and blessings.
2: Thank you so much. Peace and blessings to you, too.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Good morning, Vincent uh, Terrell Durham. How are you?
3: Good morning, Wanda. It's wonderful to hear your voice.
1: <laughs> oh, it is great to hear yours too after reading your nice marvelous team. play. Oh my goodness. What an imagination. Oh, did you get to I it? Just, That's
3: wonderful. Yeah, oh, yeah, I you. got
1: yeah, I got to it cuz I figured Beautiful. well. I wanted to, you know, have substantive comments, so it's like, okay, I need to read it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah.
4: thank you. I
3: appreciate oh, it. I hope it was a quick read. Oh.
1: Oh, it was it was lovely. Oh my gosh, the ending was like, oh my goodness! And then I read, um, you know, sort of uh, how you like, you know, so what do you think of as as a writer? You know, all of your plays have this particular type of of um, of impact, and I'm like, yeah, he did it again. Whoa, I got to read the <laughs> other ones and see how he does it with the other ones.
3: <laughs> but hopefully when we get out of the pandemic, we will be in the theater because that's where, you know, it lives. That's where plays live. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. one thing on the uh, the page, but having actors in front of you, woof that's that's the magic.
1: Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah, yeah, the ritual of theater. Yeah, being in, in that space with these other people, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I mean, You wrote the words, but the magic that happens, it happens because of the people that are there experiencing,
4: you know, this
1: story uh, that you have pulled from the collective consciousness, right?
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Deep Mm -hmm. yeah. It's amazing that, you know, I don't know who speaks to me, but a lot of people speak to me. So I just let them talk. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. And this one here, polar bears, black boys, and prairie fringe orchards. Who would have known? I never heard of a prairie fringe orchard. I've heard of the California poppy, and I walk by them, and I was like, well, if I re- if I pick one, would somebody really arrest me? And how do you, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, I've never challenged look. that, <laughs> but I always I think well, about it, like, it would be nice to have some on my table. <laughs> Yeah,
3: that's you know that's a that's a new play right there. Can you imagine? You know, like you're just strolling and you pick a flower and, boom, you're in the system. Wow, that's that's an interesting concept right there to be explored fully. Right,
1: I'll give you credit. Right, yeah. I'll give you credit. Uh, okay. Cool. Cool. Let me know. Let All me right. know. Have a special seat for me in the theater. All right. <laughs> yeah. And and your play is. Um, is the centerpiece for the Juneteenth Theater Justice Project. It's gonna be live streamed uh tonight and there are like forty Bay Area theaters that are supporting it and then there's like thirty or something, I don't know, quite a few in Southern California and others and other places throughout the country and the this the uh the broadcast here is uh hosted through um playground and and it actually is um it's a free Uh, Streaming event But people need to register So that's 7pm pacific time And um, yeah I'm gonna Read a little bit about you But what I really loved Was your essay on On walking in your neighborhood Did you go for a walk today?
3: Uh no, because uh I would be at the walk right now,
1: <laughs> oh, it's around now, oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: so no, no, you're good i'm gonna i'll I'll take it later, but its and uh, okay. yeah, actually, it's a gloomy day here, so it won't be too hot, so i can I can take my walk later, yeah,
1: okay, all right, yeah i we, would would hate to rob you of that experience, but it's just so <laughs> beautiful the way you you write you know the story of your sabbatical, right, and you know your your ritual, which you know, it's, it's kind of dangerous, you know, like, okay, well, if I walk, I'll be safe. Not really. If I run, I know I'm not safe. Right. If I drive, not sure. Gosh, if I, if I'm sitting in a cafe, maybe not outdoors, indoors, you know, when there was an indoors, now it's mostly outdoors, you know, where people are sort of like, well, gosh, can I go shopping? You know? No. (laughs) It's,
3: and you're absolutely right. There's these all these little rituals that I've become aware of that I do because, like, I do them so instinctually. But, like, mm-hmm. in, even shopping, if I have a bag in my hand, I don't want to go into a department store. You know, I'm mm-hmm. j- just that aware of what people, you know, are thinking. And I know that's what they're thinking. Oh, a black man with a bag in his hand, we got to watch him. You know, but I am working really hard to break that conditioning. I'm really working hard to break it.
1: Well, maybe you need to, like, you know, step out of your genre and do a how-to, a little little book. You know how people were carrying their um, the Miranda rights. Uh, I don't know what organization uh, some organization right, printed right. them out, like okay, and giving them to like children, like twelve years old. Um, like here are your rights. You know, carry them with you at all times because you know you might not remember them, and, mm-hmm. and just make sure that when you know you're you you encounter uh, you know someone that's. You know, uh, works for the state that you let them know that you know your rights. Not that it matters a, no. if they're not enforced. <laughs> right,
3: unfortunately,
4: you're However,
1: right. However, it might stop them. But
3: it gives you for a moment. Yeah, and yeah, and I, I would think it would give that 12 year old a sense of security. I got, I got some kind of tool to use. I got some something. I may be out here on my own by myself, but I got something mm-hmm. to hold on to.
1: Right, right, yeah, yeah. So black people as endangered species, like wow, these characters in your play. Oh my goodness, like where do they come from? Oh, let me let me let our audience know that you are a playwright. Uh, you're also a scriptwriter, author, and poet. Who <laughs> <laughs> <You> first honed <laughs> your storytelling skills as a stand-up comic in comedy clubs across the country, and your plays uh, include um, "The Fertile River," uh, Volume One, A Post-Racial America. And again, as we're already we're speaking of this new work that was commissioned by um, Playground and Planet Earth Arts, um, and yes. it's uh, it's the uh, 2019 National New Play uh, Network National Showcase of New Plays finalists and Eugene O'Neill semifinalists, Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie Fringed Orchards, and those things really exist, folks.
3: <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a mouthful, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's an intriguing mouthful. So, yeah, talk to us about about this work and um and these characters sure. that are at this, um I never heard of I guess because I don't drink, I never heard of a cocktail party like, like a like it's a real thing, right? I mean I didn't know that you oh, actually yeah. tried yeah. cocktails. Yeah. I, I thought it was a name. I mean I thought it was more of a euphism <laughs> that there are cocktails <laughs> at the party, but I know that it was like a real yeah. thing. And that's uh,
3: one of the great things. That's why I set the play in a cocktail party, because there's a lot of stage plays that take place in a cocktail party. And I wanted to add my voice to that list of plays. So mm-hmm. I was excited to, to, to follow like, um, uh, God of carnage kind of is like a, a party or a meeting of people. You just get a group of people in a room and they start having conversations, uh, Even uh, Virginia Woolf, you know, there's so much drinking. And, you know, drinking frees the tongue. So Mm -hmm. if you're hitting on some (laughs) hot-button topics and you have some alcohol in you, it's going to get real quick. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's what this play does. This play really gets real quick. It's um, uh, a white couple who have uh, gentrified Harlem. They've renovated a brownstone. They have an adopted three-year-old African-American son. And they want to get to know their neighbors. So they invite a Black Lives Matter activist in, his plus one, uh, a woman named Shamika who ho- owns a bookstore, and then a mother of a 12-year-old boy who was uh, slain by the police. So all of these people are in this room, and all of these people have voices, and all of these people tell their stories. So it, it, it's, it's rich. There's a lot of conversations going on
1: hmm yeah, there is a lot of conversation, and it's really interesting. It's a lot of reframing uh and control happening too in the room um yeah. you know, so far as okay, um you know, besides the house smelling like urine, right <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know I gotta you know that's the one thing I do in my um in my writing, like my subjects are heavy, but I always sprinkle in humor there because. You know, people, that's the best way to get people's attention. You make people laugh first, they lean in, they start listening, and then you deliver that message. Then you deliver what you want them to hear. But if you start out with humor, that's the best way to hook somebody.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so they don't call the maid a maid because she's a black woman. They call her I forgot what a household
3: her, but... assistant. Household assistant. Yes.
1: Right. What, yes, what a mouthful, this couple is... a household <laughs> assistant.
3: <laughs> right, right. And, and, and you know, and when we meet these people, they've never called her a household assistant before. But because mm-hmm. they are having black guests over, they feel that, oh, we need to pretty this up. We need to, you know, make it more palatable for them. You know, so, like, the, the wife comes up with that insane new title, household assistant. You know, it's okay for her to be a maid, which Shamika says later on, you know maids <laughs> graduated a lot of doctors which is in the play you know there's no there's no um there's no shame in being a maid so we don't have to rename her as a household assistant you know
1: mhm right right yeah and and the whole thing around um black lives matter and who gets to convene the gathering and and who gets to be an expert on what blackness is like if you're not walking in the body you know like if you're not having that tangible somatic experience then who are you to say anything about being black and and having a black life right uh so it's kind of interesting you know that that conversation that's happening and 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 people you know who are really interlopers you know like okay so uh i take the the change in names like harlem to Soha, right? Like really?
4: Right. Um, to right. To Fillmore, right.
1: to and the Mo, to the Western Edition, to whatever it is now, because people might not even know that the place in San Francisco that's so well known and so historic used to be called the Fillmore because it's not being called the Fillmore anymore.
3: Right, right, right. And and it's about respect. It's like, how do you just mm-hmm. walk into a place and you decide that you want to rename it? Have you not asked anybody? <laughs> you know you can't mm-hmm. rename my home.
1: <laughs> right. So it's right. about
3: respect and it's about boundaries and it's um uh so yeah, all of that stuff is in this play and I I I hope it's a powerful play and I hope it um makes people walk out of that theater and have more conversations. I want I want the conversation to continue after the show. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting the way that um you know, you 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 match people up. You know, you have this couple, um, you know, this this uh, physician and his wife, in you know this neighborhood where, um, if you call the police, they come. You know, that's not the right. experience of African and You call the police, and if you if you were bleeding, you're probably dead by the time they arrive. <laughs> um, right, right. And, yeah, yeah, and and then and then you have, um, you know, a mother you know, who's lost her, her 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 son, you know, um, Elijah, and um and she she arrives, you know, with a teddy bear and um and then we have an entrepreneur, we have a woman who who has Shemika who, who inherited a bookstore from her dad mm-hmm. and and is doing very well and um you know, the the wife of, you know, who is you know, part of the the hosting committee, Molly. You know, all of a sudden, you know, she's an expert on Black Lives, right?
4: Um, <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah, and and she is like so, like really invest invested invested in saving endangered species. And so then we're like, whoa, really? I mean, that conversation is just like really priceless. Um, around sort of okay, we're gonna have to like. Well, I guess no, the sort of like voicing it because perhaps black people are not seen as human beings. Um and, you know, it took a minute for us to become full five fifths, right? And it's still wrong Absolutely, on the paper. Right. I mean it's we're right. still three fifths human and we, we're slavery is still allowed. I mean in California in the constitution, which I'm sure you know, you know, slavery is is legal in, in this state. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not 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 to mention it's legal in the country.
3: <laughs> right. Right. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that whole yeah.
3: idea about putting black people on the endangered species list when that comes up in that conver- in the conversation, it hits mm-hmm. hard and the, the the guests react to it. And then all the guests mm-hmm. don't react the same way that you think they would react. So,
5: right. Yeah, it's it's, right. it's a powerful
3: conversation. And uh, a strange thing was is that, you know, mm-hmm. someone recently sent me a screenshot of someone's Facebook post and this person had never read the play, didn't know anything about me, but Mm -hmm. he was like, if they keep killing us, they need to put us on the endangered species list. So that Mm -hmm. thought is just out there. Even I know it sounds so ridiculous and I'm not condoning it or not. I'm just saying that Mm -hmm. it's something like, you know, we are at our stakes are so high that we Mm -hmm. might even consider something like that.
1: You know, how
3: crazy is that?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah 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 i um you know i wrote something um that was published in the san francisco bay view in 1999 um it was uh connected to an art exhibit by lewis watts um it was called urban footprints um mm-hmm. uh the story of a community in danger of disappearing and it's looking at west oakland and um and and i i ref, i sort of referenced this particular ex- exhibit which uh, a really wonderful, intimate um, photos of people that live in West Oakland or lived in West Oakland, because this is past, because West Oakland has changed, as mm. sort of like uh, an anthropological study, and wow. that eventually, eventually, we're going to look back on on his photos um, because there'll be all that's left of what was right. in that community. Right. People are gone, right. you know, but now, we, right. but we do have photos that. Yeah, it, you didn't imagine it. You really, it really did, you know, exist. <laughs> because you know, right. you look in West Oakland now, and it's like, really. And if we didn't have documentation, we could say that it didn't happen, right?
3: Right, right. Yes, yeah. That, mm-hmm. That's a that's a great concept. Like once upon a time, it's like, like who would think that neighborhoods would mm-hmm. go the way of the Incas?
1: <laughs> and, and
3: you know, and we're finding artifacts.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely see um, you know this work um, and the whole idea of of this um, yeah because when I when I <laughs> when I read the title, I'm like, what does a prairie fringe orchid have to do with any of this? Um, <laughs> right, right,
4: right, and, 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 and that you yeah.
0: know that
3: comes out in the conversation too. That you know this one flower is so precious that you know there's laws protecting this flower, and people lose right. their minds if you. Do something to this flower, and you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the characters brings up the, the 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 thought of, well, if we're protecting this flower like this, maybe we should protect black boys like this. And right. you know, that's mm-hmm. that's that's. And as you read, that sets off a lot of alarms.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And and I um, I, you know, I think, uh, given, um, I I mean, because you know, you can't necessarily legislate that someone will see you as a human being but if you right. legislate that if you kill this person you'll be fined like if you kill a polar bear or you or you desecrate the space where this flower might return in the spring if you don't mess with the you know the environment you know we don't know until right. the spring comes and happens but you know no. just don't mess with it right which means don't gentrify the community you know we want these children to be able to grow up you know, with a cultural context, not, you know, like they're marooned on some island somewhere, you know, where they don't see anybody around them that knows who they are. Um,
3: right. Yeah. yeah. So Nurture so, our yeah. community. You know, yeah, nurture
1: it. Totally. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know. I'm like, okay. Because I thought about that, endangered species. Like, okay, well, that's putting us with the polar bears. But it. I don't know. We tried everything else.
4: Maybe <laughs> you know, that's and, a good you know, idea.
1: <laughs> and that's
3: and that's what theater is supposed to be. Theater is supposed to like you just throw out some some thoughts, and and you're not mm-hmm. throwing out a thought saying that this is what I want, but it's just to challenge people and to get people talking and to get people debating. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. you know if you sat around and said, hey, let's put black people on the endangered species list that's going to cause some conversations and, you know, woo, baby, I would love to be in a room with those real conversations.
1: Oh, well, well nowadays, you know, with Zoom, we can be in the room. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that is true. Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. That's true. So, um, so I, I know this this play was commissioned by Playground and Planet Earth Arts, and so uh, – is is that is that how I mean just sort of thinking about um the pres- you know the the presenters did that like sort of get your mind churning around hmm you know sort of thinking about creatively like how did you come like what's your creative process? Did the did the title come before the play? Did the character come? Like, what were you thinking? How did you do this? How did you oh, like this? sure.
3: <laughs> well, this one was actually uh, pretty different. Like, sometimes they just pop into my head. But this one, mm-hmm. uh, Planet Earth Arts, actually um, came out with a prompt for us. We um, have a monthly playwriting group, and they give us a prompt, mm-hmm. and you have four days to write a 10-minute play. So their prompt in November of 2016, that's how long ago this was, um, okay. was... Um, 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 our, our planet, you know, so we had to write something about the planet, and what came to me was saving our planet, and I really actually had a hard time writing about that, because July of 2016, Philando Castile had just been murdered, and I was like, how can I write about saving the planet when I might not even be able to save myself, you know, so that's when that that contrast came to mind, like saving the planet versus black lives matter, you know, you know, what's more important, black lives or the life of a prairie fringe orchid, you know, what do we put value on? So that's, that's how that came to me this time. But sometimes they just come to me with people just, <laughs> just talking in my head, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I <laughs> I never know what I'm going to get, but I just go with it. Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, your your last name makes me think about um North Carolina. But um Oh yes. I, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. I I was I, I I watched the um the video of black women talking. It's like, oh, this is so nice and and what you wrote about storytelling and and sort of, you know, the inspiration around, you know, storytelling and the storytellers in your family. And and then I also watched uh, Targets of Choice, and I want to actually play that. I I actually uploaded oh, both wow. of those, but but I want oh, to play okay. Targets oh, of wow. Choice. Yeah, because people won't understand the connection, but they will when they hear the play. But um, right. I if you no, talk a little bit I about lefties. story, yeah, yeah, as long as you could talk a little bit about um, you know, storytelling and your storytelling particularly because you're telling our stories. You know, you're like
4: right. um,
1: you're you're touching on topics and themes that that we as people of African descent, as African Americans, you know, we don't have there's no translation necessary. We know exactly who Shamika is, you know, we we know exactly who Elijah's mom is, you know, we know exactly right. um, you know, who this this um brother is in a relationship where right. he sort of right. he doesn't know how to extricate himself but we we understand, right. you know, you don't have to be yeah. gay to get it, right?
3: <laughs> right, right. You know, and the other part we, of that is that that mm-hmm. I'm sorry uh, that we know who Molly and Peter are as well. You know, they're oh totally. they are Caucasian oh, yeah. characters, but you know, we have to live in both of those worlds. So we we know mm-hmm. we know these people. <laughs>
4: we know we them. do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and we
1: know and we know the missing. Um, what's her what's her title again? Um,
3: Oh, the household assistant.
1: The household assistant, right. Yeah. Claire.
3: Claire. <laughs> yeah.
1: Claire, with, with great benefits, right? Girlfriend's got it Absolutely. going on. Absolutely. She's
3: got everything. 401K, <laughs> two weeks <of> vacation. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I love that you read the play and you're just so uh, invested in it. Thank you. That makes me feel good. That makes me feel really good.
1: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So tell us about you know the storytelling that you came up with, and are you are you are you a Southerner? Or were you born in California? Where are you from?
3: Sure. Um, you know what? It's it's really funny. Um, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from upstate New York, but my mm-hmm. mother's family are from Richmond, Virginia, and oh. I was the first child born in the North, so to speak. I was the first child born in Binghamton, New York. So I I grew up romanticizing the South. Because, like, my mother and her siblings are everything. They, they know how to dance. They know how to sing. They know how to tell stories. They know how to tell jokes. And I was none of those. So in my little childish mind, I thought they got all of that because where they were born, you know? So I, I just romanticized the South so much that it was, it's just ridiculous but um but they are all of those things and it may have to do with them coming from Richmond, Virginia or it just may have to do with how rich and fil- full they are as personalities but they are the best storytellers that you know I've ever met and and they they don't write anything they just it's all oral and I've mm-hmm. given my mother and my aunts notebooks many times but they refuse to write anything down <laughs> So it's just going to be up to me to carry it on, to hear those stories and remember them. But, um, yeah, they, you know, like like most of us, you know, those picnics that we have in the summer and the older folks getting around that picnic table, grilling, and the stories start to flow. And they're just fascinating stories. And, you know, that's that's where I learned how to tell stories.
1: Hmm. Wow, wow. Just thinking, you know, that you're from, you know, your, your – um... Your familiar roots you know from Richmond, Virginia, and you think about um you know the four hundred years of african American history commission and you know just two thousand nineteen right um and um and and looking at you know that first colony and and those you know, twenty odd you know African people that right. were uh, traded you know as provisions. Um, in Fort, um, what's now um, Fort Monroe, um, which was um, Port Comfort, and yeah, and just think about, you know, sort of in your DNA, you know, all of that stuff, you know, like Absolutely. the stories yeah. that are unbirthed then your mom and your grandmothers and, you know, like your people. <laughs> yeah, those, um,
3: those stories are, are in me, and I think those stories are in all of us, and um, mm-hmm. I always... I'm a big advocate, like you don't have to be a professional writer and you don't have to want your story on a stage or on the movie screen, but I'm a big advocate for people writing down their stories, even if it just Mm -hmm. sits in a drawer, because like, that's a beautiful gift, you know, and we lose those gifts, you know, if your grandmother wrote a story and you found it, you know, like when Mm -hmm. you were 25, how powerful would that be to read what she experienced as a kid, you know, and I I think we, we often... Um, forget to share our stories because some of, the, some of our stories are so painful who wants to share that pain but if we don't share those stories we lose those stories so I'm a big mm-hmm. advocate for saying write down your story no matter what just write it down
1: mm-hmm. wow yeah Yeah. so um, how many plays have you written
3: well I have four full length plays and then okay. I have like a host of short plays that are like 10 minutes 15 minutes long. Yeah. So, you know, polar bears and black boys and prairie fringe orchids is, uh, is uh, one of my babies. I love that play. And another one is the fertile river, which takes place actually in um, uh, um, a fictional area of North Carolina. Speaking of Durham, North Carolina, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, those, those two are, are my babies. (laughs) So uh, I hope uh, they get some uh, production after we get out of this pandemic.
1: Mm, mhm yeah and and so is this your first play to be um, uh, having a stage reading uh, in in a virtual um, environment?
3: Absolutely, It's the first one, and it's uh, it's a new sensation. I've been sitting in on some of the rehearsals, and it's oh. it's a different feeling it's a, it's, it's a new universe is what it is, but it's cool, mm-hmm. you know and, and it's great that we're we're keeping theater alive, and this is how we have to do it for now. I'm all on board.
1: Yeah, yeah. I figure, well, shoot. Um, I love theater, and if this is the way it's translating in this moment, that's okay. I will go.
3: <laughs> right, right, right. And from and from watching, this, and there's three productions. There's going to be three virtual readings of this. Um, of mm-hmm. course, Playground San Francisco is doing their reading at seven o'clock tonight. Yeah. But there's also um, Theater of Note in uh, Los Angeles. They're doing a virtual production at six o'clock tonight, and then IAMA, uh, oh. I-A-M-A, is doing the third production, and they're at five o'clock tonight. So it's going to be three different casts, three different directors, one play. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Wow. So the last one, spell it again for me, and, and as if you said five o'clock.
3: That's correct, right? And that is IAMA. It's I-A-M-A, IAMA Theater.
1: Okay. Does that stand for something, Ayama? Uh, Ayama you know, what I mean? it probably
3: does and I just don't know yet. I don't know yet. And do you mind, can I give a shout-out to
1: the directors? Oh, please. Please, you can give a shout-out to sure. the directors, okay. to the cast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> everybody.
3: <laughs> well, every, uh, yeah, I give a shout-out to everybody, but uh, I don't want to leave people out if I start naming the cast because the, the, there's actually all three casts will – be 18 people in total, so I'm sure to leave out the name. <laughs> but uh, the director, the director for the five o'clock show at Ayama uh, is Andy Chapman, and the director at the oh wait, you know what? I got that wrong. The Ayama show is at six p.m. and that director oh, okay. is Andy Chapman. The mm-hmm. Theater of Note is at five p.m. and that director okay. is Ron McCormick, mm-hmm. and then of course we have the Playground virtual performance in San Francisco, and the director of that is Peter, Peter Kuo, K-U-O. So, yeah, shout-out to them. They're working really hard, and they're going to do a great job.
1: Yeah, that's a seven. So um, so for the five and the six, there's overlap. You can't do both. It's too bad it wasn't four. Right,
3: and Right, right. Yeah, you might be able to watch the five o'clock one and then come back around and watch the seven o'clock one. But uh, um, mm-hmm. or maybe get an hour, maybe get an hour of each, and then watch all of the one in uh San Francisco for Playground. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Right. So where where are um, theater of note and uh, IAMA Where are they located?
3: They're both located in uh, Los Angeles.
1: Okay. Okay. So you know those theaters?
3: Actually, um, I don't. Um, oh. I'm, I'm I, yeah, I'm being exposed to so many new things as well. This is an experience that um is um, getting my name out there and introducing me to a whole lot of people. So, yes, this is the first mm-hmm. time I'm working with those two theaters.
1: Okay, okay, cool, cool. That's awesome. You know, this, this whole, um, you know, um, a staging of your play across the country and, um, and who knows, maybe internationally, but definitely across the country for Juneteenth reminds me of that initiative, um, One Theater, One Play, One Day. Um, which happens Absolutely. on Disney,
3: right. yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. right, yeah, yeah. This I have to say, and then a big shout out to Aldo Billingsley because this was his yes. brainchild. He's the one who called me, and he's the one who's been doing all the all of the hard work. So uh, thank you, Aldo. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, Mister Billingsley. Yeah, he's great, great guy. Um, yeah. So I wanted you to add, talk a little bit about uh, targets of choice. Um before we play it, um, maybe we can conclude with that. Um sure. but before that, uh, I wanted you to, to talk a little bit about because your people's come from a place where there was slavery. Um Right. <laughs> right. And today right. is Juneteenth, like oh my goodness. Really? Right. Um <laughs> yeah. yeah, so why don't you talk about, you know, our Freedom Day, Black Freedom Day.
4: Yeah, yeah. You know,
3: Oh, well, you just gave me chills because I really didn't connect that with Targets of Choice so easily. But now that you've said it, but Targets of Choice, I just want to say that was produced by Toby Wyndham and his wife Chanel. And it has a whole cast of characters and it's grist- some great actors in there. But it, really the whole concept is the Emancipation Proclamation. Like how can one piece of paper give me my freedom? You know, I was already free. You know, and as mm-hmm. wonderful and fabulous as Juneteenth is, it's like you can't give me something that I have by birthright, you know? So that's mm-hmm. really what Targets of Choice is kind of getting into, you know? You know, my my freedom wasn't scratched into a piece of paper. My freedom, you know, blew in the African wind is what they say in the piece. You know, I was already free. So that that really is what Targets of Choice is trying to, trying to um, make a statement about. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's really beautiful. I was watching um listening to some of the uh uh narratives of formerly enslaved African people mm-hmm. and it's um uh, I I I collect those those narratives. I just love hearing those right. stories and, and the perspectives and so this one here, this is um these were um videotaped and so in one of them this um and a lot of times the people that were doing the interviews during the uh, the works um uh the WPA, uh, Works Progress Administration, um,
4: uh,
1: during the um, Depression. They were, these were white people interviewing formerly enslaved African people, so sometimes, you know, that whiteness, you know, precluded uh, the frankness Mm -hmm. of the response. But this particular man, um, he was an elder, of course, he said to the interviewer that he still had the disease because he was, again, like you said, Asking him about about his freedom, he said, "You know, y'all didn't give me my freedom. I already was free." And and so mm-hmm. then he said, "I know from the way you you frame that question. This this is my um, paraphrasing, uh, of course. Mm-hmm. You still got the disease, boy. You still got mm-hmm. the disease, young mm-hmm. fella. And and yeah. the disease is the disease that we know, right? You know, mm-hmm. this, this Absolutely. disease of of you know you know that that you're better than I am because you got white mm-hmm. skin." And, and yeah, and so I thought, wow, this is just so, I had never heard anyone say you still got the disease. I'm like, and this is like how many years ago before this new language?
3: <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was like, I, wow. I
0: think
3: I'm going to adopt that saying. I'm going to adopt that saying you got the disease. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on, you know, your work, uh, polar bears, Black Boys and Prairie Fringe Orchards, you know, being the twenty twenty um, you know, selection for you know, for the uh the Juneteenth um Theater Justice Project and for this national uh conversation that we're having right now around well, around race you. and mm-hmm. around black lives and around how You know, we do matter, and we do have a right to life, you know, that is not, you know, um, infringed on by uh, these different legislative norms, you know, that mean that we can't walk free and we can't walk without fear.
3: Right.
4: You know,
1: in this nation. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely, and um, and if I can say one last thing before um, oh please I, I say thank you and uh, I enjoyed our conversation, but also um, this event also all the tickets are free, but it's also mm-hmm. a fundraiser uh, for Black theaters across the nation. You know we have a goal, we have a GoFundMe page, uh, Black Theater Fund. Uh, our goal is to reach a million dollars, and it's to help and support black theaters across the nation. You know, once we come out of this pandemic, you know, we don't know what theater is going to look like, but we know what it's looked like before, and black theaters have always been in need of financial support. So Mm -hmm. please, if you have uh, the opportunity, watch the shows, and then please donate to the GoFundMe page.
1: Right. Thanks for mentioning that. And and then, of course, we can't mention that without mentioning, you know, our our dearly beloved ancestor, August Wilson, right? Oh, man. (laughs) You know,
3: uh, there's a documentary on August Wilson that I go to like a Mm. a water fountain. Whenever I need inspiration, whenever I need, you know, just Mm. that mojo, I just put that on my television and just listen to him talk.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, send me a link. I'll I'll post it. Oh, okay. I will. (laughs) Yeah, we we all need those go-to inspirations. And August Wilson, oh, my goodness, you know, that 100 years – you know, in the ten play, you know, cycles, yes. cycles. It's like, you know, gosh, what a gift, right?
3: Yes, yeah, yeah. If if I if I if I can be half of August Wilson, I'm happy.
1: <laughs> I'd be, <laughs> well, very be happy. Well you'll be all of yourself and that's good for us. <laughs> oh, oh, I love that,
3: Wanda. I love that. Let me write that down on a post it note and keep it. I love that. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Oh wow, yeah. Well, I am really looking forward to the day when we can be in the same room. Um uh, but in the meantime, I'm looking forward to um this wonderful um uh, reading. I don't know, maybe I can catch a few of these. Um I probably can uh, definitely do the so. 5 and the 7. Yeah, yeah. So I have to go look at those websites. And and that would be kind of cool, to watch the wise to play in two different, you know, sort of interpretations. Wow. Right. That's a Absolutely. great idea. See,
3: yeah. I I tell you, you're going to get a different feeling each time. I've seen all three rehearsals and Mm -hmm. all those actors bring something different to the characters, and that's what theater is about, you know, so, yeah, Mm -hmm. so if you can catch all three or catch two, catch, you know, two and a half, that would be great.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, um, thank you again so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you, and, you know, um, I, you know, I want to, you know, wish you all the best in your creative uh, work, you know, the muses be with you. I'm sure you're working on something now, if, you know, you're probably always writing, and the whole idea (laughs) of you know starting you know your career as you know as telling stories you know as a as a comedian and there are so many great folks whose lineage you are ex- you were extending or are extending in that particular mm-hmm. genre you know, like okay well yeah. we can make people laugh you know we can keep on telling these stories cuz just like you know the um those quilts right putting the stories in the quilts and putting the stories right. in and the, the negro spiritual and just right. the way we had to couch our truths. Yeah, so that, that's what we do, yeah. So that yeah, 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 that's what we do. We do it so well, right? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to put our lives, you know, in, in, you know, wrap it up in an endangered species package so that we can live. You know, it's like, okay, whatever, we gotta like wrap yeah. it up in a joke, like, okay, so we can live mm-hmm. and go
4: Because, right. you know, right. the truth
1: they're laughing right. on it and then they choke when they realize, Oh my God, really? Like Absolutely. good, We wanted you to yeah. joke. Yes,
3: yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, cool, well, Happy cool.
1: Juneteenth, Wanda. Happy Juneteenth to you too, Vincent. <laughs> so we're going to go out with targets of choice.
3: Great. All right. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You. You're welcome. You too. You guys
1: feel me? I'm Terry Pemmins, right? You know how to
3: shoot your man? You know how
4: to mobilize somebody? I mean,
3: <laughs>
4: <The> <laughs> still in right now. About eight seven, uh, so seven say seven. We work we, 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 we raise The recording Captured the witness's reaction
1: during the final moments of the shooting.
0: The, the Emancipation Proclamation. Killed, Mike Brown. The Emancipation Proclamation brought his value down.
1: Wasn't much killing the black boys before Abraham Lincoln laid his pen down.
0: Wasn't much killing the black boys as long as they were plantation bound. Once upon a time, black boys were valuable.
1: Ships sailed the ocean blue just to capture that darker hue. Six foot
0: three. Three hundred pounds. Eighteen years old. Imagine what price Mike Brown would have sold. Once upon a time, black boys were precious. One to come up missing and send the whole town searching. Six to twelve men just riding on horses, eight or nine dogs sniffing at every dead log. Find that black boy and hunt him down, throw
6: him around and toss him down, Beat him within just an inch. His master will pay something, but a dead black boy ain't worth nothing.
4: No master was going to
2: pay for the capture of Mike Brown. Might be the reason, hands in the
1: air. Cause oh, Darren Wilson, still not to care. No master was going to whoop that loud music playing Jordan Davis. Might be the reason Michael Dunn killed yet another black mother's son. Once upon a time, black boys were profit. Stored in steerage and short against losses by Lloyds of London and Edna Life. Once upon a time, black boys were prized. Men in gray fought men in blue, died from Gettysburg through Sherman's
7: march to the sea. The Emancipation Proclamation devalued a black boy's life.
0: And stand your ground comes out of a grown man's mouth. Black
4: men have been the targets of choice. From the Mississippi lynching to the Zimmerman's acquittal, From the Ferguson Missouri, to Obama's unprotected front door.
1: The Emancipation Proclamation should be torn to shreds. One man's decree that another man is free.
0: I was already free. I was already free. I was already free. Until our nation realizes that. There will always be people trying to take black people back. My freedom wasn't scratched onto a piece of paper.
7: My freedom blew in the African wind and brushed up against my
1: ancestor's skin.
0: I was already free.
1: As long as there's a proclamation stating our freedom, the thought remains that our freedom comes as a privilege of this nation. The hell
4: with proclamations. I call for a declaration.
0: I was I'm already, already free. free. I was already free. I was already free. I am free.
1: Yeah, that was um Vincent Terrell Durham, uh Targets of Choice and, and you can um watch it again, um Chapter of You can watch it again um, if you go to his website. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I wanted to, um, his website is 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 vtdisme.com. It's a really great website, and you can read that uh, really wonderful essay that he wrote about walking while black, which is really beautiful. I want to also uh, remind people that today uh, San Francisco Recovery Theater reexamines race in a live Zoom dramatic reading of the play by David Mamet, Race. And uh, it is today live, uh, 7.30 p.m., and uh, and then it's rebroadcast on Saturday and Sunday um, as well, June 20th and 21st. And uh, you can visit... Um, it's being um, being uh, co-hosted by uh, Piano Fight, and if you go to the Piano Fight website, they have a really easy link to be able to to get to the uh, the Zoom broadcast. Um, yeah, and it's a better website than SF Recovery Theater because their website is under construction. And I'm trying to think, like, really? I'm I'm not going to, to read out <laughs> the Zoom um address or the um uh the suggested donation is twenty dollars. But if you go to I actually broadcast an interview with um uh Jeffrey Greer who is the uh director, executive director of S F Recovery Theater and he's also the director of the play by David Mamet, Race, which again um is Broadcasting live on Zoom today at 7:30, and uh, but you can't do that if you if you plan on seeing um, uh, Vincent Terrell Durham's play. So yeah, just plan on catching it tomorrow or Sunday in the rebroadcast because um, this this production by uh, by Vincent is going to be really marvelous, and you don't want to miss that. And it's not being rebroadcast uh, to my knowledge. I mean, it could be because it's recorded, but. I don't know where you can see it, so you need to catch it tonight. Um, yeah, and the suggested donation for race by uh, SF Recovery Theater, don't let that be a deterrent because you actually can. Uh, it's, a, it's a donation. No one is definitely not. No one's going to be turned away for lack of funds. So so anyway, so that's race. And I was thinking because Father's Day is this weekend, I want to say you know, a heads up and hands up to um, all of the great dads, Um, black dads specifically, um, who are, you know, holding it down, you know, for their children, you know, boys and girls need their fathers, and so happy Father's Day to everyone. I wanted to play um, an interview that I had with um, Brian uh, Keith Thomas, wonderful artist, um, who had an exhibit at George Gordon Gallery. Um, Gosh, it's been a minute, and it's called Heirlooms, and so... I haven't listened to this interview in a while, but I I was looking for an interview with Brian, uh, with Keith, and he is such a great, (laughs) great, great uh, interview. And I'm not certain if this is the one that I did when I was on the bus and I was recording it, but I think it might be. Uh, And the exhibit was at George Gordon Gallery a number of years ago. And uh yeah, so let's see how this sounds. <laughs> I hope I hope I, I do do him justice in this in this uh interview.
7: This call is now being recorded. Oh super, it is working awesome. Yeah. Well I'm so happy that you with the fifty schedule, scheduled but I really wanted to have you live and in person on the show. So you have five exhibits currently up
6: Yes, yes, yes. Because you know, I've taken the last probably two and a half years and just shut down the studio and painted and painted and printed and worked on artwork because I wanted to stay focused on, uh, for me what the truth of what of and the core of uh what the artwork was about. You know, it's kind of about a sense of time travel and remembering and and keeping a Sincere thought, you know, because sometimes it can easily become a factory. Uh, you know, there had been a couple of shows at the uh, in Chicago, and they and they sold out within the first hour. And, and then what it was is they wanted me to produce the same work over and over again. And I love those uh, really ethereal, smoky paintings. You know, that talked about memory and the, and the Holy Ghost and groups of people. And I still do those, but. Uh, I didn't like the idea of them telling me I need seven paintings, you know, uh, by, you know, each month uh, because I like to work on di- different things. Whatever my heart tells me to work on, that's what I want to work on. Uh, so right. I just stopped and I created work that felt right for me. And, um, you know, and that what kind of came about with the heirloom show. Uh, right. I was from that. The yeah,
7: stopping. heirloom is, is simply instead of the five shows, Heirloom is the so only solo, uh solo um uh exhibit and the other is the others Living Black and the the exhibit at Prescott Joseph and where are the other two
6: at the Legacy uh exhibition with Unity and uh oh, and right, a right, Miller right. Lewis no. uh you know in conjunction with the with their book and right. um, at the uh, Prescott Center. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
7: Yeah. yeah. So um, I was just reading sort of refreshing my memory on on, on your, your uh, sort of where where you come from, and I didn't remember that you were from Tennessee. Yeah. And uh, so is Tennessee the south?
6: <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, you know, what we call down south. Is uh, you know Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. That's where that you know the root is really deep because you think about the line of that Mississippi River and how you know yeah. slaves were up were coming up that Mississippi River. So you'll find that you know people in Tennessee are very connected to people in Africa because you'll notice we look so much alike. Still, uh, the cadence of our voice is very similar. Uh, it hasn't been that long since that, you know, since that river journey, ocean journey, you know?
7: Right. Yeah, yeah, because you talk about how when you travel, like when you travel in the diaspora and in Africa, um, uh, people, they claim you because, you know, you don't look that, you don't look like it's been sixty five hundred five hundred years since, you know, since your people have been there. Um, uh, 'cause you know, we don't see evidence of, of you know, uh, of race and those kind of things in your in your um, in your face or in your persona. Like you know, we can see in other people you know that are lighter complexion or you know have other traces of other ancestry. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about heirloom and how that might perhaps draws from your your legacy as a Southern-born man and um, you know and, and your work because. You're always calling the ancestors in your work, and this is just, you know, a larger continuation of of some similar themes that have run through your work since I've known you um, uh, uh, since you've been here in the Bay Area, you know, presenting and doing your work.
6: One of the greatest things that the Bay Area gave me is when I came to the Bay Area, the African community automatically knew I was theirs. And without even asking me, they assumed that I was from Africa. And I had been known with some of these people for five, seven, eight years and they had just realized that, oh my goodness, you're, you're not from Ghana, you're not from Kenya, you're not from... They assumed because they... And I thought that was so beautiful because for the first time in my life, they looked at me and without judgment, they automatically said, oh, you're obviously ours, you know? So there's a spirit about the Bay Area and about the uh, Africans here that when they see their own, they claimed it so beautifully, they made assumptions, but they knew that the tie was still there. And growing up in the South, um, one of the main questions I'd always gotten from uh, uh, my community in the South was, where are you from? It's like, I'm from Tennessee. There's no but where were you born? I said, Tennessee. Now, I got the same questions when I went to Georgia. Where are you from? I said, Tennessee. No, but where, where were you born? I said Tennessee. So there's always been some some link that was not connected. Um, but when I came to California, you know, they remind me that, that the African connection is still very much in the bones. And what I recognize, and I also try to bring forth in the paintings, that it's it's. A spirit thing is the way someone stands. It's the way they look at you when they when they know that you're theirs. You know, you, you when you recognize your beloveds and you have the courage to call them by name, that it's a whole physical transformation that occurs. You know, and then when I'm working on a painting, I remember that sense of stillness and sense of meditation when someone just gives you a soul nod when they know, ah, my people. You know, it's really a calming, a calming feeling in the connection from the South with elders. Uh, there's something so spectacular when you're in the midst of someone that's seen many, many sunsets because they don't waste their words. They look at you. They have a conversation with, uh, with you. They are very sincere because they, they have a sense of knowing because they've lived long enough for something on their body to start to leave them. And I recognize that, too, is even a very unusual blessing, you know, because we want to live forever. We want to be all young. But there's something that happens when your knee goes out, when your hip goes out, when your back doesn't do what it used to do. It's getting you ready for what we might call a prayer. You talk about every niche shall Well, it's, it's a pleasure to live long enough for something to make you slow down and sit down and have a, and have a conversation because you recognize time is occurring. Uh, And it's okay, Uh, and it's 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 preparing you for whatever that next phase is. So in the paintings, what is one of my I really love to have the elder, you know, sitting in a chair in some of the uh, uh, paintings because that's a very sacred space when you've made it to that position one more time, and you can sit right there. You earn the right to rest. You earn the right to you know sit on your throne in this life.
7: Yeah, and and you know with heirloom you know you have so many uh elders that are pictured in these really wonderful um you know moments uh in the studio um you know you've got this beautiful couple you know these elders that love each other i mean how many times do you see a picture a painting of people that are like really up there in age and you, you can see the love in, in, in their eyes and you know, they were formerly enslaved, which means they've suffered a lot, yet yes. they still have love in their hearts for one another. Would you talk a little bit about sort of who has showed up for you in this exhibition and how they yeah. came to you? Particularly, let's start with this couple, and then we can yeah. talk about, um, you know, Mama Tubman, who is like, you know, you and her hang out a lot you got a lot of topic. <laughs> I
6: know, you know, and she's still speaking to me. The couple you're speaking of, they're known as Mr. and Mrs. Landlord of Savannah, Georgia. They both lived uh, through slavery and uh, they're they're both centurions. Uh, one thing I think is so magical is I want to celebrate their their the love between them. Uh because oftentimes when you, you know, think about people that went through uh uh slavery We, you know, you think about all their cotton. they must have been so hard. But there's something had to happen for you to choose to stay in your body. There's some some love energy had to be residing in that. And when I look at that couple, it just remind me that they made it through, and they could bear witness that the love they have for each other carried them through. Because when you were going through slavery, you realize that at any time my beloved could be taken away from me, my child, my mother, the whole family. So the family construct had to be in this moment with with we're, we're together and we're gonna hold that moment sacred. So in this and then in, in, in that piece I wanted to celebrate that love. So the name of the piece is I love you always. So on that piece is I adorn uh the heirloom bags like little pockets that hang from the painting. Inside those I have things that a loved one may have given another loved one. For example, I have uh shiny rocks. I have um uh, pieces of of, of ebony that 's been carved into flowers that were carved into rings uh, things that uh there's a also a um, a necklace a rosary. Uh, what I did is when I was kind of researching the aspects of what was found around some of the slave cabins these are things that they found they found buttons they found little bottles they found all these uh Little little stones, and you could imagine if you loved someone, what would you give them? You would give them what you had in a very sincere manner. So, I imagine that they probably Mr. Landlord may have given Miss Landlord a beautiful button, and and she may have sewn it on the hem of her garment. He may have, you know, willowed her a a ring or something, and she put it on her person. Because when you look deeply at even images of people that they labeled as slaves, you'll notice that they have jewelry on. It's like, who would have thought people went through, went through slavery and had jewelry? But if you look closely, you'll see necklaces. You'll see ear adornments. You'll see things hanging off their clothing. Uh, so there's more to the story than, you know, chopping uh, uh, cotton and shackles. So that's a very much a, definitely a part of it. But there's a, a legacy and a love story about, you know, um, such a community that uh, I wanted to share through, uh, through that piece. And just like with the landlords, there's the Harriet Tubman piece. And all my research about her, I came across a few a couple of articles that talked about how certain men found her so attractive. They mentioned, it like, Harriet's beautiful African features. They talked about how she moved across the room. And I said, wait a minute, this is Harriet Tubman? You know, because we used to see this image of this, you know, older uh, woman. And of course, it's only you know, maybe, you know, three or four pictures I've ever seen of her, but the idea that someone would not only find her beautiful, but but put it in writing about how beautiful they found her, that reminds you of the kind of power she had. Harriet Tubman kind of reminds me of a Serena Williams kind of energy. You know, she owns, she's an athlete, and she's a powerful, beautiful woman. And when she moved across space, she had a sense of of, of grace and a sense of of, um, of theatrics. Because there are many times when she had to become someone else in order to survive. And if you think about what does it take if your your master is looking at you and you're walking toward him, you must really believe that you have really encapsulated the idea of. You're a free woman, and you're and you're moving through space, and you're not, you know, involved in any way with aspects of slavery. That takes a certain constitution of mind, body, and soul. And Harriet had that kind of soul. So even in the paintings I'm working on of her now, I'm making, working on some younger paintings of Harriet that celebrate her sense of womanhood, her sense of beauty, and her sense of power. Uh, and even when I work with her as an old woman, I want her to be. To exude a sense of, of respect, but also a sense of intimacy in her eyes that sometimes we don't see when we think about, you know, our superheroes. Uh, we often, you know, forget the human side of them. So with my paintings of Harriet, uh, I think about her in ways above the, the, the title we've given her. I think about people that knew her and their testimonies about her.
7: Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about uh, General Tubman, about how you were giving her an internal life, uh, letting her have desires and and wants and needs, and perhaps some of them were unfulfilled. And then I was also thinking about how she knew some of her ancestry, uh, I believe, like where her people came from, you know, that ended up, uh, uh, you know, enslaved here, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the whole idea of of heirlooms, you know, is also you know you mentioned. Looking at you know the beauty and the love, and I hadn't I hadn't thought about people who were enslaved wearing jewelry. So it's like, wow, you're enslaved, but you still want to be beautiful. Right. Like,
6: yes. Yeah. Yes. And what? And you? What, and where do you go to find beauty? You go to nature. Uh, if, you, if you if you want to find out people that really live a green life. Then you go to people that don't have a lot of material stuff, they know how to look at nature and, and, and take something that was provided for nature and adorn themselves with it. It may be a, a flower necklace, you know so uh, or like a lay type necklace. They would put that on you know when they were getting ready to go to, you know to uh, go somewhere. So there's always nature, and the nature came from a natural source. It, and often, you know what you want to also think about is people have, were always losing things. If you're working in the house, if you're working outside, you find things. So can you imagine, even in some of the slave cabins, in their stashes what they must have found, <laughs> what they must have sold into their garment? Because people were always losing things. If, there's a, if there was a fire, there's things left behind. Who do you think cleaned up the relics? You, when it's, it's common for you to find things, and you just put them in your pocket. You saw them in the hem of your garment. They become your own personal heirlooms, and they have a story. Uh, yeah, something to kind of think about.
7: Definitely, definitely. And people who know your work, uh, you have this sort of iconic kind of imagery. You know, I mean, you have these beautiful paintings. Some of them are so large. The person is just like their lives are just so big. They're lifelike and you just step right into the imagery. And some of these folks are ancestors, but they aren't all ancestors. And you have, you know, one of, one of your models was, was uh, there at opening night, uh, yes. and, uh, and 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 you, he looks like an angel. I mean, you have him, like, across three three uh, paintings. Um, you depict this young man, which just really powerfully, and it's just really wonderful because you think about, young black men and how they depict it today in society, and it's not uplifting and it's not beautiful, yet you have this young man, and he is just so beautiful. And then you can actually see him in the place, like, oh, wow, you really did him justice. Let me talk about, about that. I think it's a, a, a trip text. And uh, and right. then I want you to also talk about some of your, you know, like if, if, it's, a, if it's a Brian Key Thomas um, exhibit, you've got to have some cotton. We gotta have some roses. We have to have some fans. You know, right. you know, of course it's like all these found pieces like frames and the back of the right. chairs and and all these other antique things.
6: It's like, oh my goodness, it's just so rich. Right. The uh, the image the gentleman that you're talking about, Brother Michael. Uh brother I I drew Brother Michael once and I photographed him. And uh when the painting was done The the painting was actually purchased by uh, Carol H. Williams Advertising. And she saw the painting, and she said, oh, you know, I really appreciate the the, the image of Jesus. And I said, of Jesus? I said, "Uh, I didn't paint Jesus. She said, oh, yeah, I I purchased your Jesus. I said, oh, Michael? (laughs) You know, so she was the first person that had really, because I'm looking at this, you know, a strong masculine energy. And when she saw it, she saw Jesus. And I went, oh, okay, you know it it was, she reminded me of when she looked at him, there was a sense of power and calmness that she really appreciated, and she associated that with a christ like consciousness so she so since then there's been a whole series is uh, a series done of of uh this a Christ of of different colors uh, so so that's so. So he kind of embodied that because you know when you're painting someone, you're, you you can call up so much, but they must possess the very thing you're trying to call up. Otherwise, it just becomes this fictional character. So uh, yeah. So brother. So brother Michael, I worked with him for about 12 years, uh, drawing and uh, and painting him, and he is who he appears to be. He's 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 a calm, strong uh, uh, brother with a clear mind and and lives a really clean life. And people see that in his, in his image. So I really, you know, give thanks for him, you know, working with me throughout the years. When you see the paintings and you see cotton and you see roses, what I'm thinking about is things that you pick in the South and they're associated with class. Because you pick cotton, you also pick roses. And I read a book recently called The Wind Done Gone, it's a black version of Gone with the Wind uh, from a friend of mine uh, named Tracy Brown. She said, I have this book that you should read. I said, Tracy, I'm busy. I don't want to read more books. She said, you should really read the book. It's called The Wind and Gone. I said, okay, I'll read it. And let me tell you. I turned maybe the third page, and the description was, it was this woman talking about what she saw. And she said, the cotton was so white and the soil was so red. The only thing I could compare it to was afterbirth. I went, oh, oh, okay, a different kind of red. Can you imagine? She said the cotton was so white, and the and the and the soil was so red. The only thing she could compare the vision to was afterbirth. That really lets you know the intensity of the relationship between this red and uh, red and white. So, so that's you know as a memory that also takes me back to the to the good old you know heirloom South uh, and the church fans that I have to have in every show, they remind me of of home because they're a spiritual object you know they're a sacred object they're given out. Uh, to ease people's pain, to ease their ease their their sweat on their brow. There are people that find religion with these with these things in their in their hand. You know, oftentimes they have funerary advertisements on the on the back of them, so you can look behind some of the fans and see an archive of African American uh, businesses on the back, and just the fonts and how they talk about it and the price of things. You know, for example, you know, like we're talking about, like the funeral. It's so amazing. So when you think about uh, a uh, an heirloom object from the South that there talks about the American experience, the paper church fan is one of those things. So I may take them and make them out of wood and adorn them with different things. Some may have something like Victorian uh, buttons and head pins on them because you can't have a church fan without the idea of pageantry uh, because when it comes to the African ex- experience and the church, that's, you know, where you really kind of roll up to the opera is when you go to church because the church is where people of color have titles. When you didn't have titles anywhere else, you have them in the church. And the church was where you also uh, were baptized in the church or affiliated with the church at a river somewhere. But it's still, you know, with your understanding of of God and religion and faith uh, and something as simple as walking into church and walking down that aisle and putting your money in the uh, little bowl, all that, that whole ritual of pageantry is about the sacred moment, understanding that, I walked this path today. Next Sunday I might be rolling down here in a coffin. So give me so let me put on my Sunday's best and show up fully for God today. Uh so all those the church fans, you know, remind me of that. So all the jewelry on the fans and on the pieces, ninety eight percent of it is uh all you know, uh the real thing. They're you know, so the gold is real, even when there's parts that are gilded it's twenty three karat gold. The the, the the rosaries are uh, made, of medium made of garnet. There's also uh, some Victorian jewelry called memorial jewelry uh, on them, or mourning jewelry, where there's lots of hair and inscriptions uh, on the uh, back of many of the pieces. You know, there's a power when you bring something that's traveled for that long. You know, over 100 years to this moment, where they create a whole new family on this piece with all these little heirloom bags hanging off, things inside of the bags, things pressed on the bags. Uh, you know, they begin to tell their own uh, story, and you know, I have my stories. But what I love most is what just happened to me a few times. Someone has purchased a piece, and I'm so excited to tell them about the piece, and they tell me to stop. They said, "We don't want. I don't want to hear your story, Keith." I have my own story now. It's it's my painting. And I'm so excited because it just reminds me, it's not about me. <laughs> you know, it, the work I'm doing is not about me. It's about us. It's about community. It's about building. It's about people looking for home. And when they see a sense of self, you know, uh, being able to claim that and bring it into their space. And I think that's the, you know, that's the goal, right there, is to add to the to the to the story of family, add to the story of community, add to the story of having something physical that you can hold on to, that you can tell your story through.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was um, so I was reflecting um, so my closing minutes about um, you know the whole idea of, of the prayers and the rituals. And the, uh, um, just how everything is it's just, um, it's, 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 you know, it's, 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 some of them you sort of think like it's performance, um, but it's like performance in that you're being invited into a sacred space. And, and you mentioned that the bags that hang off the skirts of, of the Creole woman who's in mourning yeah. and that morning jewelry and you said that for each one of those bags you stitch them together and all of them have prayer tracks in there and yes. all kinds of things and, and like yes. how many bags I mean it looks like hundreds of them I mean how many there bags? are hundreds so like oh, yeah yeah and I'm like what an investment and I just think about how you know you're a painter but then you're you bring so much more you know you sort of sort of breathe life into the canvas almost as if it's not flat anymore.
6: It's a living entity. Well, you know, something that's one of the one main reasons one where I think about the scale that I work is not to like because of like big pieces. There's something happens, you know, when you think about uh, people that you may have never met. And so the one reason why I mean the images are life size is because well, you know, I have never perhaps met the Gold King. I've never met Huey. I've never met Harriet. Uh so if I make a painting of them, then we can stand or you know, face to face and have a dialogue with that you know, with that uh with that person. And, you know, paintings like that have a spirit about them. And when you have an object that has volume on there and there's something in it that you can't see, it automatically reminds you of of life, because that's what nature does. Nature may have a chrysalis, it may have a cocoon. You can't see what's you can't see what's in it, but you know there's some kind of life force occurring in there. That's the reason why every painting I made sure you know uh, all the bags had prayer calls and seeds and things in them that that talked about journey. Uh, you know, right now my favorite thing is to put seeds in them because seeds know what to do. They know how to be still until the proper season occurs, you know. Uh, and I think that's so, that's so magical. Because imagine if there's some, I would imagine that nature always reclaims its children. So one day all of these things will, you know, be on the ground. And, to, and imagine one of the heirloom paintings with some, if something occurs where they have to lay on the ground, where there's seeds in some of the bags, and the moment they hit dirt, they know what to do then they can sprout and give even more life and uh, go back to
0: nature. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah. I yeah. want you to talk a little bit about about freedom. And before you do that, I wanted to go back to the fans because I remember yeah. when you had a show when I first saw your, your your fans and you had talked about going to South Africa and yeah. when you were there, you went to a church and, and you didn't speak the language, but you spoke the language. And yeah. you talked about so at home and so comfortable in the church, and you made this huge fan. It was it was like kind of damn a giant with you because <laughs> it was bigger than than anyone ever, you know, like it was really, really, really big. <laughs> yes. And yeah. yeah, and I was just wondering about this sort of how you know just the language that you that you speak with your work, how it you know it it, it sort of breaks down the distance. That has separated us as a people throughout the African diaspora, Africa, you know, because there's so much familiar within the imagery and within the objects that that distance is bridged immediately, you know, yeah. through
6: that contact. Well, you know, when I went to uh, last time I went to South Africa, I went to a, a church called like W.W. Brown Memorial Baptist Church, a little a church in uh, Cliptown South Africa, and I went there to talk about uh, American spirituality, and I went there with some church fans, and I also went there with items that uh, Americans had given to me to give to their people or when I saw them. So, uh, So I had this box of of things that people had, had uh, given me. And then I had these church fans. So I was going to the church. And I was going to do a workshop at a few churches and I arrived there and they said, Oh, people, we want you to speak. I said, speak. I said, we're going to do a workshop at the church. They said, "Oh, no, we've never had a professor in, here in our church. Will you speak? So I stood on the, on the pulpit and anyone that knows me, I can't really be still what I'm talking. So uh, there was someone interpreting the Zulu, and I was speaking English, but when I was speaking, I, 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 I like to stomp a little bit. There's a certain beat, so I like to to walk around, and I like to maintain a certain beat. It happened to be the same beat they had in this church because they didn't have uh a lot of fancy musicians. They had these bags that they would hit to hold the beat. So before, when they couldn't understand the language, they were reading the the uh, the body language and the rhythm and the beat. And it just reminded us that we were all so beautifully connected. And I brought them the the fans and they moved extremely quickly, you know, uh, across uh, different parts of, of Africa when I was there. But it was so amazing how they embraced the feeling when they didn't know the word. And when they were speaking to me, I was looking at them and I could also understand what they were saying by uh, the nonverbal communication. You know, you can, you know, when someone is saying by the rhythm of their, the rhythm of their uh, voice. But these fans had a uh, a really amazing impact on the community because they were symbols of home. Because they also think of America about their family here as well. So it's not just we trying to get back there. They also want to come here and be amongst us. So it's not, you know, as a big, it's not as separated as the media would often tell us uh, about all the propaganda about, you know, Africans and America. When you arrive, you realize that we are definitely one, and it hasn't been that long. And the, and, the, and the blood and the rhythm and the way we communicate is still right there. You know, we stand the way we stand. We speak the way we speak, not because of slavery, but because we know who our mama is.
7: my question about, about freedom.
6: Um, talk yeah. about being a free man. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what it means to be uh, free is understand that you're connected. Even if someone doesn't look like you, that you're connected to a source. And there's nothing that can be taken away from you. You know, I feel, and I've always felt connected. And uh, when I see someone, regardless of their color or who they are, I can look deep enough in them to see myself and have empathy and respect for that. So I don't have to think about their class or where they're from. I just feel their spirit and understand that, you know, uh, we are one and we're connected and we're going to treat each other with respect. And there is really no... uh uh, uh other response that I'm going to uh, demand other than that. And that's what I've been, you know, given since I was a small child, you know, five years old, speaking to people that are in their eighties and, and they were my best friends and we have a conversation. So I didn't see their color or their age. They were just spirits moving through space. So when you recognize that, and it's a lesson I'm still continually learning is that freedom is about uh, connection and when you feel connected, you feel free because you realize that all these beautiful things around you, they're yours. But because they're going to pass, part of your duty is to pass them on as well. Like all the things at the show, freedom is being able to bring them and to create a family and then let it go. That's what it means to be free. I'm not trying to hold on to it. You know, I find these relics all over the world. I put them on a painting, and then I let them go. You know, they can go tell their story. That's, that's freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. That's freedom. Right. <laughs>
7: wow. So your exhibit at Joyce Gordon is it just through this weekend?
6: Yes. Yeah. The show will be through this weekend, and uh, the show comes down probably Sunday. I think Monday. So it'll be up, uh through the week and this weekend, and uh yeah, the windows should be quite wow. red now with rose petals. Uh, that have been wow. placed there weekly with prayer. So a prayer and then there's been rose petals. So there's dried rose petals and fresh rose petals. So when you pass by the gallery, there's these, this bell of cotton and, and more sculptures. But at the base of them, it should be completely red now. And if you look very closely, you'll be able to see some church fans up under the red, uh, skin of rose petals that have been laid down weekly as the arrangements have been. Change the rose petals are prayed over, and then they're scattered in the window.
7: Nice, nice. And then um, your Prescott Joseph exhibit uh, and the one at Oak Stop and the one, uh, the Richmond, uh, The Art of Living Black, uh, are those up for uh, another week or so? or well, For that?
6: another week or so. You know, some may be up okay. a little longer. I, I have to check my schedule. I don't know when they come down. I to work hard to get them up, and then you know when it gets close to the time for them to come down, then I know they're coming down. But so they're up now, and there's a whole full studio back here of brand new work uh, ready for uh, the next show. A lot of things going on now. I'm working with the veiled, the veiled object. So, so images with veils. Uh, I'm really excited about about that. So there'll be the bags and the veils and the cotton and the roses. <laughs> Yes, and the uh, church hand.
7: So, the, so is the veil like mystery, or the veil like um, the veil that the Boys talks about in the Souls of Black Folk? Um,
6: it's
5: literally the veil that
7: brides wear, um, and you know. It's literally
6: like the, for example, like the veil that uh, a bride would wear or a king would wear. Veil as a symbol of ceremony. Veil as a symbol uh, of sacred space. Veil as a symbol. Uh, of of, of of transition uh, so it's literally you know images like you would see at the show except they have veils that cascade on the on, on the floor but you can still see through the painting but they're they veil over some images of for example the gold king who has a veil over his face but the veil goes through the painting and then it turns into actual beads that beat on the, the a cascade on the floor so the idea is that sacred space between that, uh, the veil. It almost works like a sense of atmosphere, you know? You can't quite see the face, but you know it's back there. Uh, yeah.
7: Oh, wow, that sounds really cool. Yeah, because um, when you say veil and the way she just described it, it sounds like, um, you know, sort of, you know, heirloom is we have the ancestors, and, and some of them, uh, you will know, well, actually – you know, it looks like they're they're with us in the gallery, but then also they might be moving between the spaces, and, and there there's only so far we can go in this present, in this, you know, this corporal form that we're in now. We can't yes. necessarily follow them. And so yes. the bell could be the mystery of the journey that we're going to all join,
5: you
4: yes. know,
7: eventually, but we're not there yet. Oh, that sounds like a perfect um, continuation of, of the bell.
6: <laughs> yeah. yeah. it you know, you know, one it, it it doesn't it doesn't stop. It just keeps going. I as soon as work gets out I pull other work that's in that's in storage on the side of the house and bring it into the studio and you you don't stop because there's a show going on. You keep you keep building and you keep building the community of paintings, you know. Uh and I really definitely wanna thank you for always coming coming to the show and really supporting, you know, um the the arts because we need people like you that make the time to Write us down, because some people that have never seen the show may look at your article, come to the show, but just expand the whole conversation of what it means to be human. And I think that's something that we really need as artists. We need the community. So I really, really appreciate you, uh, you know, including me on the on your Wanda's pics uh, about, you know, images to see and to, and to consider. It really means – a lot, uh, because we can talk all day long about, you know, our own paintings. But when someone else, someone else comes in, like yourself, and adds voice to it, it's kind of like a degree. <laughs> you know, it's like it's someone else giving you the, the stamp that says this might be worthy of you paying attention to. So, you know, so myself and I'm sure all of us really, you know, thank you for the years and the dedication you put into supporting our work. Oh well, you're, you're
7: quite welcome. I'm really looking forward to. This next installation, you know, this next body of work, because it's, you know, it's always just fantastic, you know, the work oh, you, you. do and, and the insights that you share with us, and yeah, people definitely need to go and check out the show. And I'm looking forward to your your big book, you know, that we can buy with these images in there and writing. The <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, when I grow up. <laughs> you know, a lot of shows. <laughs>
2: when I grow up. When I grow up. Well,
7: you know, you, you work for a, a really teaching institution, California College of the Arts, so, I mean, you know, like you're one of their their prized, you
6: know, faculty. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's really a great place. It's gone on 20 years now at the California College of the Arts, and it's a great place. The students are fantastic because, you know, they come eager to learn, and I come eager to share, and we have a, a call and response. You know, we have a dialogue. About possibilities, and it's great to be amongst you know thinkers like that. So uh, I really have great respect for you know the institution as well as the the, the students and the passion that they that they uh, they bring. You know, they keep you awake.
7: Yeah. Yeah, and then I think about you know you're you're a young artist, and and just the legacy of of African diaspora artists in, in, you know, the visual arts, you know, particularly painters, and I think about Raymond Saunders, who's your colleague. Absolutely. Um, but then you think about all the other painters. So I guess um, maybe we, we could maybe go out with you calling some names, like who, who are some of your your uh, your artistic inspirations and mentors?
6: You know, there's uh, some people, there's a artist from the South named Ratcliffe Bailey. And I walked into a Rackless Bailey show in Atlanta once, and I, I saw church fans, and I saw images, and I said, who is this? You know, who is this person? And then at, at the time, then you could just call somebody on the phone. So I looked at his number, I called him, I said, who are you? I said, uh, I, I just walked into, I said, like, my own studio. And so Rackless Bailey is one of the people, because we're around the, you know, the same, um, we're doing this thing around the same amount of time, around the same age, and it just kind of reminds me about, how we've seen things in the South and interpret them in a very similar way. So I really enjoy and Bailey's uh, uh, work. You know, I really enjoy uh, uh, Carl Walker's silhouettes. Uh, I think they're so phenomenal because they're like time travelers within themselves because oftentimes when people came to save us, we couldn't see their face. All it was was a silhouette that came to take us to the other side of the river to, to assist us all in the cloak of darkness. So I really enjoy the spirit of, uh, you know, of her work. And you mentioned Raymond. Raymond Thunder has this amazing ability to draw, to collage, and to keep things mobile. He's the only person I know that can walk into a museum that has a piece of his on permanent collection and still change it. <laughs> you know, I see that's so phenomenal. Yes. It's like, how can we do it? It's like, yes. that's, you know, that's, that's alive, uh, you know, so, you know there's several people that I really admire and respect, and they are only, uh, you know, a couple. Yeah, mm-hmm. so
4: many.
7: Yeah, so do you have – is one of the places where you have worked uh, at the college of – at California College of the Arts or no?
6: Is, is – what was the question again?
7: It's uh, one of the places that you have worked up now. Is it at PCA or no?
6: Uh, yeah, there, there is uh, a show – up right now at the California College of Art in the, on the San Francisco, uh, on the San okay. Francisco campus. And it's got one more week. It's a, it's a curated show, uh, by the, by the faculty of an alumni, uh, and an undergraduate and a graduate. So the tenured faculty chose, uh, uh, who we thought would, would we would really, really like to show with. So this show is currently going on, uh, on the San Francisco campus. Uh, of the California College of Arts. So right now, I think it has one one more week before the show comes down.
7: Okay. Okay. Super. And so you said the faculty um, are you paired up with a, a student or, or right.
6: an Right. The 10 the the, oh. the, the, the faculty chose. Uh, we chose uh, a graduate student from the you know yes. uh, and an alumni and an undergraduate student to participate in a show to kinda of bring us together and to see who we felt was working was making work that we thought we really wanted to share and talk about. So we all selected okay. uh, those and then we had a we have a, a show that's currently up on the San Francisco campus. Yeah. Everything should be online now. getting uh, more information about the show on the school's website.
7: Okay, okay great. And for people that want to keep keep uh, you know, so to keep up with what you're
6: doing because, you know, you're just so busy, uh, how can they best do that? You know, the best way is everything is under my name, Brian Keith Thomas, and Facebook is a fantastic way, and there's some things on Instagram. But I tend to update the Facebook first before I update a website or anything. So if you just Google Brian with a Y, Brian Keith Thomas, uh, it should take you to uh, our Facebook, and that's where I tend to, update things the most where you find out what's going on today. Yeah, it's to okay. on my Facebook.
7: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, it's really been wonderful speaking to you, Keith, um, and um looking forward to uh, seeing some of these other places where you have, you know, frequent some of your lovely work.
6: Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Work yeah. in progress. Always. Uh,
7: yeah, Always. So You take good care. Again, thank you so much for the lovely conversation.
6: Oh, thank you so very much.
7: You're welcome. Peace All back.
6: right. A pleasure, Wanda.